All right. You are listening to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael Cravens, and I am your host. Let's see. We are just coming off of Dove Opener. I hope everyone got out there and had a good time chasing those birds around, getting some wing shooting in, and enjoying some good food. Um, let's see. Normally, I would have been down in Yuma with the Arizona chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, helping out with their uh, annual dove cook-off and, and following pint night. And, you know, while it's one of my favorite events every year, I, I uh, it, it worked out in my favor this year. I, uh, I opted out of Dove Opener this year, and instead, I headed north. Uh, I went up after Grouse and Chucker, and it actually worked out for me. I, I, did, uh, I did a limited grouse on my first day out in the Kaibab. Then I headed over into the canyon lands and I found me a couple chuckers. That took me two years and a lot of hiking to find those birds. It was a lot of fun. And uh, if you'd like to hear how that went down, I want you to go check out my buddy Jess Warner's podcast, Arizona Afield. He invited me on to talk all about it. It was a lot of fun. So look for that in the show notes. Let's see. Today we are... We, we've got a very special guest, uh, someone I greatly admire, and that's Jim Strogen. Uh, Jim has a, a, a long uh, history uh, of experience in the least fairy fishery. And as a lot of you, you know, especially in the fly fishing community, uh, this fishery is in trouble. Um, it's a world-renowned destination, rainbow trout fishery. But, you know, with, with a changing climate and dropping water levels in Lake Powell, um, things aren't looking good. But this podcast, we're going to tell you all about that. And it's not all doom and gloom, you know. We, we, we're going to throw in some information about, you know, how to go experience this fishery while we got it, uh, how to enjoy it, you know. And, you know, the past, present, future, um, you know, what, what to expect, what's going on here uh, with this fishery. So, so please stick around and learn all about it. it, it this is an interesting one, and I'm really happy with it. So before we get to that, though, Let's get through our announcements. Uh, we got a lot going on, so let's see. First up, from Zane Gray Chapter of Trout Unlimited. Let's see, October 1st. Man, I don't know how to say the name of this park. Carriage? C-A-R-R-I-A-G-E. Park in Mesa. They are doing a carp fly fishing clinic. Uh, man, I'll tell you, that is one thing that I do miss about living in the city. Um, Fly fishing for carp in the canal systems and, and at the at the parks, the city parks, it's fun. I mean, it's challenging too. We're talking about big fish that make your reel scream, get you into your backing, and they're not easy to get to take a fly. It, it's very challenging. And, and you know, I wish when I had started, I would have had this opportunity because boy, it would have it would have certainly shortened the learning curve for me. But yeah, I miss those fish, and uh, anytime I go down to the city, I always take a flyer on in case I get the opportunity, and there's a lot of it around. So let's see, that's going to be Saturday, October 1st, uh, 7.30 a.m. arrival. Uh, let's see, it's free, so no no reason not to go. Snacks, they're going to have snacks. It's limited to 24, so if you're going to try to pull this off, uh, get in there and register, and I will have yeah the link to, to get registered in the show notes below, so have a look going to be a good time next up all right this is a big one uh, arizona elk society is having their junior elk hunt camp uh this is this is a big big hunt uh and, and a big undertaking let's see it's going to be october 6th through the 9th um saint joseph youth camp by mormon lake it's a junior elk hunt um and junior hunters must have their junior elk tag uh, this is unit 6a 
and 5BS. Not only that, so this is a great, great opportunity uh, for young people um, to get out and, and, you know, hunt elk. That's a big deal. I didn't have that opportunity when I was a kid. Uh, so if you got, if you have a child or know a child that would benefit from this, try to get them involved. Um, and if you don't consider volunteering to help out with us, um, you know, you're, you're changing lives here. They are looking for, uh, guides and mentors. They're looking for cooks and kitchen help. They're looking for general camp helpers and trailers and haulers. So, um, I will have links to how to get how to get the the children signed up and also how to volunteer in the show notes below. So please look for that and consider uh, consider volunteering. Arizona Elk Society is a great organization, and man, do they do a lot of work for elk and elk habitat and hunters in our state. Okay, let's see. Okay, don't forget. Uh, let's see. I think it's September 30, October 1st and 2nd. We are having the Arizona Backcountry Hunters and Anglers in conjunction with the Arizona Wildlife Federation Annual Family Squirrel Camp. This year it's going to be up uh, in Flagstaff near Mormon Lake. You can get that location by registering at the Arizona Chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers website. I'll have that link below. I know we're already over halfway uh, to our, our RSVP limit, so, so please get on there and, and get registered um i can genuinely say this is my favorite event of the year we have a blast every time we do this so i would love to have you guys along with us so come and join us just get registered quick all right finally we have uh arizona valley of the sun quail forever they are doing their quail day this is a big fundraiser for them and it's a great time they are going to have silent auctions, tiered raffles, vendors, hunting dog training information. They are going to have guest speakers like Larissa Harding of Arizona Game and Fish Departments, small game biologist, Pat Moore, a Valley of the Sun Quail Forever chapter president and owner of Black Tree Kennels. And Pat is a character. I promise you will enjoy that. Let's see. They're going to have this year's hunting outlook, how to hunt Arizona's different species of quail, Learn what type of habitats we should look for, uh, shotgun and ammo info, uh, take home some helpful hunting handouts. There's a variety of prices uh, to get in here and support the work these guys do. I will have a link below. Let's see, did I give you a date? Saturday, October 8th at 10.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. All right, and that is going to be at the North Valley Church, 27201 north black canyon highway phoenix arizona 85085 okay sorry that was in, in lighter print yeah let me uh let me get you a link down below for this as well uh arizona uh valley of the sun quail forever is uh, one of my favorite organizations uh, a bunch of good guys there do a lot of good work take advantage of all these opportunities get out there support these great conservation organizations they certainly deserve it and enjoy this episode with Jim Strogen on, on Lee's Ferries. It's a dynamic and changing cold water fishery here in Arizona. And I will see you after the show. Thanks so much. All right, here I am with Jim Strogen. 
Um, and Jim and I, we've spent the morning uh, fishing the Upper Verde. I guess you don't mind if I give away spots like that. But, um, yeah, for some beautiful little wild rainbow trout. Actually, the Upper East Verde. Upper East Verde. Thank you. That's better. Yeah, yeah I should know better to say that since... Uh, yeah, we have other other projects going on on the Upper Verde as well. Um, regardless, yeah, spent the morning fishing. Um, it sounds like we got out of there right on time. There's thunder rumbling, rumbling in the background. But yeah, caught some beautiful little wild rainbow trout today and had a lot of fun. I learned a ton about the fishery, but we're not here to talk about that fishery today. We're here to talk about the Lee's Ferry fishery. But before we jump into that, uh, Jim, can you take a, a moment and tell us about you, where you're from, what you do, your relationship to the ferry? Sure. Uh, I'm currently uh, retired and living in Payson, um, but I have kind of a long history with Lee's Ferry and, and the canyon. Um, I, my first experience with the canyon um, was as a, a Grand Canyon natu- uh, National Park ranger naturalist, and then I also spent some time teaching up there on, on the South Rim, in, on, on the South Rim. The... Um, part that I'm involved with right now is um, called the Glen Canyon Dam Adaptive Management Program. And that program helps decide things that are important for the river system below mm-hmm. Glen Canyon Dam all the way down to, uh, to Lake Mead. And um, there's the parts that I've been involved with have been the Adaptive Management Work Group and the Technical Work Group. Okay. And I started as a member of the technical work group, which is kind of under the MWIG. And um, that group um, works with the scientists that study the river system and um, look at different things that's going on in the river and try to find ways to maximize the resources or at least not try to do things that are going to cause harm to the river system. Gotcha. And then the... Um, AMWIG, the, the, part, the group that I'm uh, representative on now, basically um, is, is part of their job is to work um, at trying to decide on uh, policies and, and um, kind of the framework that um, helps guide the Grand Canyon Dam Adaptive Management Program. And we develop recommendations that go to the Secretary of the Interior. Mm-hmm. And it's the Secretary of the Interior that decides ultimately on, on what actions are taken on the river gotcha. uh, to benefit the river. The The part that some people don't understand about that is, as I am a recreational fishing rep, mm-hmm. um, there are 24 other state, there are 24 stakeholder groups in this Glen Kenya Dam Adaptive Management Program, either as an Amway rep or a Twig rep. And so we all have different interests that come into play as we're having those discussions. And um, so, we have different things that we're representing, and and you know not all of those things kind of match up. Gotcha. Yeah, I follow. Well, t- tell us a little bit more about you. Where do you come from, and and what I mean, your interests in this area, and kind of what brought you here. Uh, I um, thought that I was going to be a fisheries biologist, and in fact, uh-huh. I became a fisheries biologist um, uh, when I when I was in high school. I was like, there's nothing that I want to do more than fish for trout. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I decided I was going to pursue that as a career, and I did that. I, I got a master's degree in, in fisheries biology and got to study uh, trout stomachs and age of fish by looking at fish scales and populations of fish on the Al Sabo Manistee Rivers in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
while I was doing that, I got very involved with teaching kids and made a career shift and went into uh, elementary education and middle school education as a teacher mm -hmm. and then also a uh, assistant curriculum director and uh, building administrator uh, is, is when I is what I retired as. Gotcha. But as in retirement, I have gone back to those uh, fish biology roots yeah. and been able to apply that through this Grand Canyon Dam Adaptive mm -hmm. Management Program, as well as um, I'm currently the president of the Gila Trout chapter of Trout Unlimited. So I get to apply it in that way as we do, uh, do conservation projects awesome. here and around Payson. Great. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I, I don't want to say guys like us because I don't want to speak for you, but guys like me, when I think of Lee's Ferry, I think of it as a fishery. Um, with that said, um, it has not always been a fishery, and there's, there's more to it than that. Can you give us a little history on the area? Yeah. Um, what's interesting about Lee's Ferry, if, you, if you've tried to cross the Colorado River, mm -hmm. you'd be hard-pressed to be able to cross the Colorado River because... Well, even five miles downstream where the current bridge is, yeah. it's uh, about 800 feet across and about 400 feet deep. Yeah. So it's not too convenient for uh, getting anything across. So back uh, in the uh, late 18, 1800s, I guess 1864 was when the first crossing, which was Jacob Hamlin, mm -hmm. uh, had, a, had a ferry that, that was able to cross equipment, men, and horses. Uh, but then uh, John Lee, John D. Lee, in 1873, basically was the first to actually start the official operation of a ferry okay. at Lee's Ferry. And it's, like I said, it's about five miles upstream from, from that bridge that crosses at Marble Canyon. And at that point, the geology is such that it basically, for whatever reason, the, the sides of both sides of the river come down to basically level with the river. So it's a convenient place and probably the only place in hundreds of miles that you yeah. can effectively cross the Colorado River. Yeah. Can, can you imagine coming across that obstacle back in the wagon days? <laughs> Jesus. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it would be equal parts awe and frustration, I would assume. Well, and, and that's true. I mean, the, the awe, I mean, you know, I can't think of a more beautiful place to fish yeah. than at least ferry. And, you know, that's... That's the joy when you go up there is is just taking in all that beautiful scenery. Right. So for for me personally, and and, and I don't I don't expect you to know this, but um, the old structures down there in the orchard, how, how do you know how the old those are? What they date back to? Um, well, like I said, they, he was there from he started in 1873. Um, he was actually ex executed in 1877 for his role in the Mountain Meadows massacre, mm -hmm. and then his wife took over. Uh, the operation 1877 to 79. Wow. So I, I suspect that those things were all built in that yeah. time frame. Gotcha. And when did the dam go up? Uh, the dam went up in 64. Okay. All right. And, and then it obviously took a while to, to fill that. Um, and uh, I, I would say fishing, obviously, at the beginning, it wasn't, it wasn't initially... Um, cold enough for it to be mm -hmm. a trout fishery, but when it became cold enough so that there was a tailwater developed on, below the dam, then that would have been probably mid-60s through 68, I would say, would be would be about the time that it, that would uh, be the range for it to become a, yeah. a trout fishery. So um, 
I guess after the dam went up, after it you know established itself, you know, as a cold tailwater, when when was a fishery established, and what was it a? I assume it was a purposeful thing, the stocking of rainbows in there. And is are there any historical like roots to those particular rainbow trout? Are at that point, do you know if rainbow trout were a you know, were they already a kind of a homogenous thing that had been mixed up all over the place? Um, I, I don't think that there was anything in terms of genetics for a specific specific strain that was de- decided was going to be for Lee's Ferry. Mm-hmm. But um, they ended up stocking through, uh, I think, through the mid-90s. Yeah. Um, and initially, it was kind of a, it was not a, a, a trout that could self-sustain itself. Mm-hmm. Those population, so they had to continue to restock it. Mm-hmm. And um, as a as Lake Powell being a young lake, I think that was part of why those early years were so productive because it was really producing great nutrients getting poured through the river. Yeah, to the river. I think uh, there was a lot of bait fish that were kind of getting chewed up by oh, the yeah. turbines coming through the through the through the lake. So mm-hmm. I think that. In, increase the the yield for the for the trout to kind of consume but the other thing that was going on at that time was there was no regulation of the flow so it was really up and down and it was massively up and down uh, uh, until they made some changes about that and uh, I think that uh, came in about in about the uh, uh, I think it, well let me, I'll, I'll give you an example back mm-hmm. in 1983 um, they had um, flow that summer of 82,000 cubic feet per second. And that was the year that people might remember where they put kind of plywood up on the dam. And I had some friends that were <laughs> on the river at that time. They were on one of those big, massive boats, and they flipped in crystal. Oh, my gosh. Uh, then the next year, um, in 84, it, was, they, it had gotten down to 45,000 as, as it happened, you know, as, as the release um, so when they began to stabilize that, I think two things happened. I think that helped the po- trout population, and at that time, they began to become self-sustaining. Interesting. So about 1998, it kind of became self-sustaining. Okay. And to just take a step back here, um, to be crystal clear uh, for folks that maybe might not know exactly the place we're talking about, we're talking about the Grand Canyon or the beginning of the Grand Canyon, um, and it, it is an absolutely stunning place to fish. I mean, you're in, in cold, clear water with beautiful wild fish with towering, you know, pink cliff walls uh, rising up around you. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, and it's, it's a, you know, iconic world-renowned fishery. Um, as much as I enjoy it now, and as much as these fish are sizable good wild trout for me, um, I see pictures, old, even black and white photos, if I'm remembering correctly, of stringers full of giant rainbow trout from there. So what's happened between then and now? Uh, I think a couple of things have happened, or maybe a lot of things. Like I mentioned, I think the nutrients that were dropped into the lake, from the lake to mm-hmm. the river, was of higher quality back then than it is it now newer. because it was newer. And, okay. Um, and I think the fact that there were those bait fish that were possibly yeah. getting kind of run through it was also po- possible. Um, I think the high fluctuations may have helped, you know, because it was bringing that in itself was probably bringing 
more nutrients in, into the system as well. Mm -hmm. And scouring the bottom and kind of refreshing it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, now it has, while it has its ups and downs, um, you know, the, you're right. The, the general <coughs> size of the fish is, is much smaller. I think, I think it's probably on the range of about 14 inches. Yeah. And um, what Game and Fish does to manage that is they are looking to have anglers be able to uh, catch like one fish per hour. And uh, a few years ago, when that catch rate did not match that desire, they actually did a, a, a stocking to try to supplement that. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem with that kind of management is it's short term, yeah. and you know it's that's such a big river system that that yeah. may not have that big of an impact. That, that seems so funny to me because when you take a boat, or at least when I take a boat up the fair, uh, up the river, uh, from the ferry. There are fish everywhere. Everywhere you look, there are yeah. tons of fish. Yeah. So I, I can't imagine um, a problem arising with with, with catch rate. But um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, but I mean, I, I mean, I you know, I, I agree with you. Probably back in the in the seventies and eighties, when when I was uh, fishing up there, I remember. I mean, you know, you, you've heard of the San Juan Shuffle, where mm -hmm. you know you kind of move your your feet on the bottom and and it's almost like chumming for fish. Yeah. You know, when you, when I remember walking along, you know, at one of the riffle or some of the riffle beds there having 20 plus inch fish oh and my. it's all stacked up behind me. And I haven't seen that in quite a while. Wow. So I, I've heard, um, and maybe I've heard wrong, but you know, the, the midges, insects, aquatic insects, um, the, their eggs are laid at the water line along rocks. And this is, it's fluctuated to a point that doesn't give those eggs time to hatch. Does that have anything to do with? Yeah, one of, one of the differences about Lee's Ferry and, and the, the, and maybe I should just kind of define that for, for folks that aren't, aren't familiar with it. Lee's Ferry is defined as basically from the Glen Canyon Dam down to the first riffle, which is the Perea Riffle. So it's about a, about a 16-mile section. Yeah, so okay. where you put in, there's a dock that you can go upriver from that dock, mm -hmm. but where the, the boat trips that go downriver is just downstream from that dock. And then once they get into that first riffle downstream from them, maybe about a mile, that's kind of the end of the, the fishery. And like you said, the walk-in area is basically, largely people consider the walk-in area from kind of the boat put-in area down to the Priya Riffle, although mm -hmm. some people will fish above the dock and um, and and kind of cast spoons and stuff into that that yeah. kind of deeper, stiller right. water. Yeah, that was one thing I noticed. Um, I, I don't have a great deal of experience in this in this fishery, but but I have fished it, um, and you know I've I've been all the way up the river, almost to the dam there. And one thing that struck me is one, I don't want people to be discouraged talking about reduction in fish size. And, and this and that because it's still a fantastic fishery. I mean, yeah, the it's, fish it's, are it's, amazingly strong. Yes, um, and the walk-in area is vast. There's plenty of room for everybody there, and there's tons of fish. Uh, but if you can get up river um, in a boat with a guide or rent a boat, um, it's pretty fantastic as well. But for me, you know, that pocket water in the in the walk-in area, I know how to fish that stuff. I've been fishing rivers my whole life. But upstream, that was a new animal. I had to figure that out. It was big, open, glassy, smooth water up mm -hmm. there. Um, and, and their fish are there. You can see them. Yeah. But one, one of the, you know, I, I, I consider myself pretty good at spotting fish and knowing where to fish too. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but when you go up there with a the guide, it's 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 a whole different experience yeah. because for, they have the ability to see fish that that I can't see. Right. And they know where you should put your fly and what fly to use, and you know it all looks great water, but it's not all equally great water. Mm -hmm. So um, that really gives you an advantage. And then obviously, if you go up there again on your own afterwards, you you kind of know where some of those spots are. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, this is a completely unfair question to you, um, and I don't expect a, a great answer, but um, if you had a crystal ball, what would it say regarding the future of this fishery? Is do we? I guess what I'm trying to say is, can we look forward to giant rainbow trout in that fishery ever again, you think? Well, there's a lot of issues that are going on at Lee's Ferry that are going to make it hard. Yeah. Um, that That's a a really complicated question. I mean, I, I can kind of layer that one in, in a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. um, the, the issue, one of the issues right now is um, uh, the incentivized harvest for brown trout. Mm -hmm. And um, when people remember the big rainbow trout that were at least fairy, it, it kind of gives them kind of a thrill to think that, now I can catch big brown trout at yeah, least Ferry, yeah. and it feels like the old times even better because yeah. you know brown trout are so aggressive and they'll, they'll take you know big streamers and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with that is in the the long term um, and experimental management plan of 2016, which is called the LTEM, that kind of drives a lot of the work that's that's um, done at the river yeah. and, and, and what rules we have to follow. Jim. Rainbow trout fishery was part of that, mm -hmm. but a brown trout fishery was not. is not. Okay. So l let's start by laying the foundation with what, what this brown trout harvest initiative is exactly. I mean, well, what does that mean? Okay. Um, as I said, you know, this is designed as a rainbow trout fishery. Mm -hmm. And when it was developed, when the dam was put in place, that was one of the resources that was protected was this rainbow trout fishery. Mm -hmm. And um, it has, it's got blue ribbon status and, you know, from, from a game and fish perspective. So it, it's, a, it's a quality place. When the brown trout were, the brown trout have been in the canyon system probably since the 1920s and 30s. But they have been both mostly in the um, tributary streams like Bright Angel Creek, for example. Uh -huh. And where they, when they have made it into the river as the river has cooled after the, the dam, for whatever reason, their numbers have remained fairly small. Okay. Um, in the range of if you took the whole trout population, at least very, the percentage of brown trout was probably on the range of about 3% of the total trout population. Okay. And so they were always there, but they were in relatively small numbers. About 2014, and there's a lot of ideas about why this happened, but about 2014, there began to be a spike in the brown trout population. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, from a fly fisher's perspective, I love, brown, I love to catch brown trout too. From a fly fish perspective, that sounds like a good thing. Mm -hmm. At the same time, some things were going on that I think most anglers probably aren't aware of in... 2019, uh, the the Park Service um, had uh, 
basically gotten permission uh-huh. to uh, be able to remove brown trout from the Lee's Ferry area. And that document basically gave, gave described three tiers of operation that they could engage with and be fine with. One was the incentivized harvest. That was tier one. Tier two was taking the reds and um, dest- you know, destroying the reds so that the uh, eggs or the, or the fry were no longer in there. Mm-hmm. And to and be the, clear, the reds are, are basically the, the spawning gr- beds. Yep. Yes, thank you. Uh, and then the third most aggressive treatment would be to electrofish the entire Lee's Ferry Reach, the whole 15, 16 miles, for a period of six to eight weeks nightly. Mm-hmm. And um, from the stamp, so at that point, you know, the, the idea for Tier 2 and Tier 3 <coughs> is to try to target brown trout. But in reality, there's a little bit of overlap with um, when brown trout and rainbow spawn. So it's potential that you could also be damaging the spawning beds right. of rainbows. Mm-hmm. And then when you're electrofishing those fish for that six to eight week window, most of the fish that you're going to be catching nightly are going to be rainbows. So while you're going to be taking brown trout out during that operation, you are going to be exposing rainbows nightly yeah, to electrofish. Yeah, a real hard time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's going to obviously make it harder for fishing the next day, yeah. and it would be you know, detrimental to the businesses. So to avoid that, Tier 1 is a way to try to manage that and have it be under angler control. Okay. And um, it asks that anglers, if you catch a brown trout, that you keep the brown trout. Mm-hmm. And it's not just asking you to keep it. You're getting paid for it. Okay. So um, I think the current rate of pay is $33 per fish, plus you get $50 for every three fish you catch in a month. Mm-hmm. And um, you turn in the, the, the fish head and the entrails, and the, pur- the purpose for that is some of those fish have – pit tags in them that they want to be able to retain and, mm-hmm. you know, learn whatever they can scientifically yeah. about the fish. So, you know, that control that we have as anglers allows us to say, if we, if, if this incentivized harvest is successful, and it's not about eliminating brown trout entirely, it's about trying to get them back down to the, the pre-2014 levels of about 3% of the the population. If that's successful, then that basically keeps the park service from having to engage in those more aggressive gotcha. treatments. That, that's good to know, because um, this has been a very controversial subject in, in the fly fishing community. Um, but it sounds like if we have to have this uh, some kind of control, this is by all means the, the best way forward, um, assuming they get to where they need to be with it. Right. Uh, with that said, you know if 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 you were to take a picture of a brown trout you just knocked on the head with a club and you're holding it up with a big smile and posted it on a on a fly fishing social media page, you were yeah. going to get tore right. up for that. Yeah. I mean, if you were, not to back you into a corner, but if you were talking to one of these fellas, how would you explain the importance or why is this important? Why is it more important than, you know, having another sport fish to target? Well, I think there's a kind of a couple ways to look at this. You can actively, as a fly fisher, take part in that mm-hmm. and you know be part of that solution 
or you can at least understand that there are others, usually these are the most effective so far at catching these brown trout, are spin fishers with, mm -hmm. you know, with big cast master kinds of lures. And understand that they are providing a service to you. If you don't want to engage in catch and keep mm -hmm. for brown trout, at least understand that having these spin fishers do it hopefully is going to help the rainbow trout fishery exist. Yeah. And I, I think one of, the, one of the things that I think some fly fishers may kind of have a little bit of a, a difference about, a, a difference of understanding about is I think sometimes Lee's Ferry gets equated with the San Juan River where there's browns and rainbows. Yeah. And um, in a lot of times, those rainbows that New Mexico stocks become food for the browns. Let's be mm -hmm. real about that. Yeah. There's, so the browns that are in Lee's Ferry, they're not getting stocked fish to them. They're eating baby rainbows. Yeah. So it's impacting the rainbow trout fishery that is designed to be protected from this, from this right. program. The other thing that's quite different than the San Juan that we have to take into account, and I, and I know that people don't appreciate this, but Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, which is where Lee's Ferry is located, values rainbow trout as part of its recreational assets. Uh -huh. Just downstream, basically downstream of the Perea Riffle, becomes Grand Canyon National Park. Mm -hmm. Trout, so I'll use the I'll use the, um, the the daily bag limit as an example. In the least ferry stretch, you can you can keep two rainbow trout. You can keep as many brown trout as you want. Mm -hmm. At the Priya Riffle down to the Navajo Bridge, you can keep six rainbow trout and all the brown trout that you want from the Navajo Bridge. All the way downriver, you can keep as many trout as you want. Okay. So trout in general, further downriver, are seen as a detriment to the endangered species that are in the river, the native mm -hmm. trout, the native um, warm water fish in the river. Yeah. And from a rainbow trout perspective, that translates to more of a competitive issue. From a brown trout perspective, if they get down to the Little Colorado, which is about 60 miles downriver, um, it becomes a predatory thing because brown trout are about 17 times more likely to eat other fish than rainbows. Yeah. So the, the plan that is part of this whole process that the Park Service has engaged in is to look at the brown trout on Lee's Ferry as, as kind of a, perhaps kind of a, a nursery place that we want to keep the population there small enough so that those younger fish don't move downstream because they're out of habitat in Lee's Ferry and reestablish at the Little Colorado, Little Colorado River where they could impact yeah. the humpback chub population. Yeah. And, boy, I'll, I'll, I'll say it for myself, speaking only for myself, um, and this is coming from someone who dearly loves big brown trout. We've been talking about big brown trout all day today. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think there's a place for you know, the, these exotic sport fish that we love so much, um, and, and a place for natives. Uh, but I will say <clears throat> the desert Southwest has some of the most uniquely evolved fishes on the planet. And 
we have all but wiped them out um, with with our sport fish and, and our, our eastern fish. Um, so, in my my perspective, again, just me, uh, I personally feel like we need to do whatever we can to protect what native fishes we have left. Um, and by all means, I, I'd like to see good management of our sport fisheries too, because I enjoy mm-hmm. them so much. But and that's just for me. Um, and I don't think people realize what was here before mm-hmm. before we brought all these other species here. Yeah. Um, kind, mean, kind of kind of part of that, Michael, is um, part of what drives <coughs> these decisions is dam operations and management of the river operations have to follow the Grand Canyon Protection Act, mm-hmm. and they have to follow the Endangered Species Act. So those have a higher priority in the sense of um, introduced yeah. fish. So um, even though we value them as a sport fish, you know, these trout as a sport fish, you know, they, what drives some of these decisions is, is some of those, other, those earlier acts. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess as frustrating as it is for the fly fishing community that would like to have these big browns in there, um, unfortunately, management practices are not necessarily, especially within the national park, aimed at them and, and their wants. I guess, mm-hmm. uh, like it or not, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. So we've talked all about this controversial stuff, um, but the the ferry's facing some bigger problems now. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, it's facing a number of difficult things right now. Um, I think most people are aware that Lake Powell and Lake Mead are uh, drastically shrinking yeah, if they're not they just need to turn on their television right. so at this point um uh, lake powell is about 25 percent of capacity wow. and the um from the from a fish standpoint the lake level is currently about 43 percent above or 43 feet above the penstocks mm-hmm. and the penstocks are the tubes that basically go down to the the power generating turbines that create power in the lake and then that water comes through at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Um, The lake temperature right now averages about 79 degrees. With the penstocks being 43 feet lower, obviously it's going to be cooler to a degree, but basically temperatures at Lee's Ferry are in the month of August now at 65 to 69 degrees. And just historically, you know, from the last few decades, it's probably averaged in between 44 and 60. Yeah. So 65 to 69, most trout fishers know that that's getting tough on trout. Yeah. And then add to that set of woes is the projections for the temperatures for uh, the river in August, September of 2023 is about 72 degrees. Oh, wow. So um, that's problematic in itself. So lower, lower lake levels means warmer temperatures are delivered to the river, and there's no real cure for that other than using the bypass tubes. Well, the bypass tubes are about 120 feet further down in the, in the dam, and obviously they're going to be delivering cooler water, but they, are, they deliver no power generation whatsoever. So when we get to the point, or if we get to the point where the pen stocks are no longer able to be used, that means that water will be delivered through the bypass tubes. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, I, I, I've been working on, on some of this stuff. Uh, there's a, a smallmouth bass ad hoc group that I've been, I've been working with. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I learned in that was that I assumed that when water was being delivered through those bypass tubes, that it was going to remain cold for quite a while because 120 feet seems like yeah. it'll stay cold. And, you know, the, the projections are that it might only take it getting down maybe 20 or 30 feet at the most before it gets too warm to inhibit smallmouth bass. Okay. Now, the smallmouth bass issue comes into play because they are able to spawn at about 61 degrees and warmer. Okay. So currently, let's go back to that, the, the river temperature is now 65 to 69. Mm-hmm. So we are well within the spawning temperature range of smallmouth bass. And up until this point, the river has remained cold enough that it hasn't been an issue. The, 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 the bass and other uh, high-risk um, warm water predators that have gone through the dam, that cold water buffer... Mm-hmm. has pretty much taken care of the problem. There's a, a, a warm water... So historically, smallmouth bass have been able to get through that. Yes. At least fry, I assume. Yeah. Um, so other, and other things too. I mean, I've, okay. seen, I've seen striped bass down there. Channel cats have gotten down. Green sunfish are another real yeah, problem yeah. problem species. In these, walleyes occasionally will get down there too. Hmm. Um, but typically what will happen to these warm water predators when, they're, when they come down through the dam one of their favorite places to kind of take a rest is uh, the sloughs, which are about three miles downriver from the dam. And this warm water back cove area basically is a, is a way for uh, managers to basically kind of survey mm-hmm. to see, do we have a problem? And this year, uh, a dozen young of your smallmouth were found in the slough. Oh, so wow. that indicates there's reproduction. Reproduction. So okay. if that's happening, you know, that's a problem for the whole river system. And, and you know, the fact that it's just 12 doesn't mean, oh, it's not really a big problem. It is a problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some major shifts have to be made in order to try to manage that so that it, it doesn't take over. Because smallmouth bass would be problematic to the trout fishery, mm-hmm. and they would be incredibly tr- problematic to the native fish downriver. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, Jim, I told you about the trip my boy and I did up in Utah for cutthroats. Literally, for probably three hours on the drive home, he was brainstorming issues to take, or ways to take care of the smallmouth bass problem. He had all kinds of, you should talk to him. Yeah, um, really? Most of them are like, involve spear guns and things like <laughs> that, but in gill nets and yeah, I mean, for three hours. Nice. We brainstormed I this issue. It. So yeah, you guys, you guys should get together and work on that. Um, some of the, some of the ideas that they're, getting ready to engage mm-hmm. with, um, which I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pleased to hear from, from uh, the Bureau of Reclamation and from the Glen Canyon Dam Adaptive Management Program. Um, they're looking for ways to help minimize fish pass-through through the dam because as the water level in the lake gets closer to the penstocks, that band of water is where the fish are. That that top band of water is where most of the fish are. So as it gets closer to the penstock, more and more oh, fish no. could potentially pass through the dam unless some kind of a mechanism is put into play that would minimize that. Mm-hmm. That's one strategy. Another strategy is that's being 
considered. And there's there's obviously others that will 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 come come into play here as 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 we continue to work on this. But one another strategy is trying to manage the temperature that is in the river kind of in short spurts so that it inhibits the times when we would expect smallmouth to be spawning. So either a temperature spike or a temperature drop mm -hmm. that inhibits the spawning or maybe a high flow event or an, and coupled with a very, very low flow event that kind of knocks, off their, uh, knocks them off of their bed. Something on those orders are, are some of the ideas that are being considered right now so that we really disadvantage smallmouth. Mm -hmm. The advantage of these cold water spikes is that will obviously help the trout fishery. Yeah. Um, what's kind of unusual about that section of the river compared to the river above Lake Powell is the native fish population has been decimated by these high-risk warm water in invasive warm water predators because they have access to these native fish as a food source. Mm -hmm. The cold water buffer that the release from the bottom of Glen Canyon Dam has provided basically makes it uncomfortable for those warm water fish in that first section. Mm -hmm. So it kind of acts as somewhat of a barrier to protect the native fish downstream. But as that water temperature has warmed, that barrier no longer is, a, is effective, and that would allow greater movement of these predatory fish downstream. Yeah. I, uh, I was at a, at actually at a party um, a couple weeks ago, and ran, I ran into a long, long-time river guide um, down there, and he was telling me stories uh, about how in the early days, you know, you, you couldn't even stand in the water while you're rigging your boat. It was mm -hmm. just too cold, and it's like, yeah. now it's nothing. You know? Yeah. But yeah. Interesting. And a little bit disturbing. The other, the other part of that down, downstream issue that um, we want to try to avoid is there are several warm water tributaries that come in. So the Little Colorado is probably <coughs> one of the first. Yeah. Uh, Kanab Creek, Havasu Creek, Shinamu Creek all have kind of warm inflows into the river. So if smallmouth bass, if the river is a little bit colder, they're naturally going to move to those warmer yeah. tribs. Mm -hmm. And getting them in those warmer trips where there's more native fish is doubly yeah. much more of a problem because yeah and and you know the other part that from a management standpoint it's even though it's a big river and it's incredibly hard to manage it's easier to manage the Lee's Ferry section than it is downriver because you can't get to it yeah I see interesting well that's. Uh that's a bunch of, of dark and dreary stuff, Jim. Um, but but I appreciate your knowledge on, on all this and, and the information. But let's uh, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about actually fishing the ferry and the good the good parts of this place. Uh, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> so you, you already talked about how you recommended getting a guide because that's just kind of a game oh. game changer. Um, and uh, yeah, I I don't I'm poor. I, I've never used a guide in my life. Um, Maybe it's because I'm cheap. Maybe it's just because I, I like the struggle and I like to figure it out myself. But, but I would like to someday. Um, I think it would be a lot of fun. And, uh, and I, I don't know. I like figuring things out on my own. Even if it takes longer and I catch mm -hmm. less fish, I, I enjoy the, again, the struggle. But um, so for somebody, you know, let's, let's say they're not going to get a guide. They're going to go fish the, uh, the walk-in area. What kind of advice would you give them? 
Well, it sounds like, Michael, you've had some real good success in the walk-in. I've had less success oh, in the yeah. walk-in than, than upriver, so maybe you should talk about wow. the walk-in. But, I, you know, I mean, it's, it's from, from my perspective, it's faster water mm -hmm. than I fish upriver. Okay. Um, and I don't feel like I have the, the wading skills to get in very it far. It is pretty sketchy water. Yeah. 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 So uh, I, I'm always very careful when I fish the walk. I, it's, it's, it's beautiful water, and mm -hmm. I enjoy it. But if, I, if I'm going to take the time to go up to Lee's Ferry, I'm probably going to go up river. Okay. Well, all right. So let's start here. What, what kind of uh, prey items do you find in the river? What are these fish eating? Yeah, I think, I think you touched on that. We, we kind of bounced over that. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about the midge hatch. Yep. And I think I got off track there a little bit. But... One of the things that's different about Lee's Ferry and, and that tailwater compared to a lot of other tailwaters is a lot of the other tailwaters in the country have a good insect diversity. Mm -hmm. um, and when we talk about that, we often talk about the EPT, the ephemeropter, plecopter, tricopter, or the mayflies, stoneflies, and caddisflies. Mm -hmm. um, Lee's Ferry is dominated by midges mm -hmm. and then the other probably dominant species are scuds okay and then there's also some other things like uh, new zealand mud snails that are an invasive that are in there too mm -hmm. so uh, the the rainbows tend to like the midges the best i mean the, yeah, i would say in there in the evening when they all start sipping off the yeah top. yeah and what's crazy about that is these are small bugs mm-hmm and the fact that that can sustain a fish means that they right. have to eat a lot of them. Yeah. And there are a lot of them. Um, some people may have heard about the bug flow experiments. And the bug flow experiments are uh, one of the things that happens in a river like um, the river below Glen Canyon Dam is it has, it has tides based on the power, power needs of the customers. Mm-hmm. So as that tide shifts highs and lows, it exposes the rock that the midges lay their eggs on. Mm -hmm. So if they have laid the eggs and the water drops below that level and the eggs have a chance to dry out or desiccate, then those eggs are no longer viable and you've wasted I see. that egg production from those, from those um, adults. Mm -hmm. So the bug flows, which um, I think this is the I think this is the fourth year, might be the fifth, but I think it's the fourth. Um, the bug the bug flow experiments basically have basically I mean one of one of the the catchphrases of is give give the bugs a we the weekend off, is they have um, manipulated the flows so that on Saturday and Sunday, those flows do not go quite as low. They are maintained at a constant level so that the bugs that are laid there will have a wetted surface to lay them on. And then when the water returns on Monday, that rock that they laid it on will be even wetter. Yeah. So it's not going to be drying out. It, you know, it, it will maximize the number of bugs that are basically produced on the weekends to hopefully benefit the river. Now, that obviously helps the trout population the native fish downstream benefit from those bugs too. They eat those bugs and the birds and the bats and things like that. I mean, one, one of the, one of the important data sources for this is, uh, they ask the, uh, the, the guides on the river trips to, uh, 
take light traps, uh, take traps down, mm-hmm. um, because the the adults obviously are light sensitive, and trying to track where the bugs are and how many bugs as, are they are they more common as as a result of these these uh, um, bug flow experiments or not, mm-hmm. and um, so those additional bugs help the birds and the and the bats as well. Yeah. Um, all right. So when I'm fishing uh, a midge hatch, I'm usually throwing a Griffiths gnat. Um, what, what what do you use? Uh, we kind of talked a little bit about this today when we were fishing. Um, I am more of a wet fly fisher than a dry fly yeah. fisher. If, if I if I had my choice, and that kind of goes back to um, when I when I have studied aquatic insects and their life cycle. For many bugs, probably 90, 95% of their life cycle is underwater in front of the fish. So that 5%, I'll use mayflies as an example, even though there's not, uh, you know, mayflies is not important to the least fairy reach, but mayflies um, as, a, as an aquatic phase of their life are in the water for about a year. Mm-hmm. The adult is 24 to 48 hours. So... I, I choose to represent the percentage that's in front of the fish. I hear you. I hear that, you. That amount of time. I, I got to say, it's, though, it's a lot more fun seeing them catch it on the top. There's right? something satisfying yeah. about putting an itty bitty <laughs> tiny fly in front of a fish and having them actually eat it yeah. and then hooking and landing that fish with that tiny little yep. size. I know. I, I, I get that. And when I have the chance to do dry fly fishing, I do. It's, it's almost, it's fun, but it's unnerving too because you're yeah. using really light tippets and everything's just yeah. like real stressful. The, the, it's the, doable though. The, the, the hard part for me when I when <clears throat> I dry fly fish because I because I wet fly fish so often is my reflexes for a wet fly fish are so much quicker. Yeah, and I have to kind of retrain myself as a dry fly fisher yeah. to slow down and let them take it Don't under before fly, I, yeah. before That's I pull hard. that fly out of the way. That's hard. Um, all right, you mentioned scuds. Yes. Scuds, they're not really an insect, correct? Right. Yeah, they're um, a crustacean. Like they're, a I, think, I think they're an amphipod. Okay. And uh, yeah, they they are um, often found kind of attached to the plants, and they are actually eating the diatoms on the plants. Interesting. And um, so um, one of the kind of unique things about them, I mean, I, I when I when I when I, I, I like to look th- for bugs when I when I go fishing, but that's just because I like bugs. Um, he's downplaying this. I mean, he's literally doing research um, <laughs> on, on 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 aquatic insects, and it's quite interesting. Um, but where where you typically will see the bugs is if you if you pull up kind of a wad of the plant material, the scuds will be kind of all over that plant material. And um, what's kind of interesting in terms of what they have, the, you know, the the scientists that are like doing the bug study, they have found that it, it's kind of weird because back in the day, rainbows were eating midges, but they also were very into scuds. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, it seems like of late, rainbows have shifted more to eating the midges, and the brown trout are eating more really? of the scuds and the New Zealand mud snails. Huh. So yeah. that that's providing, obviously, a higher nutrient base right. for those young browns to get started, and then obviously the browns will move so into a fish. A scud as a is a solid little package yeah, of protein. Absolutely. You know, and a midge is just a wiry little, yeah. almost nothing. Yeah. That's interesting. I wonder why. I know uh, back back east, 
I had caught rainbow trout that literally felt like a bag of gravel. They were so chock full of, full of snails, mm -hmm. but I've not experienced that out here at all. Hmm. All right. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah, Jim's got his fly box here. So we're going to, we're going to dig around in it. Uh, I almost always my go-to, um, and there's, you know, there's, I guess a living scud is typically gray. What'd you say? Yeah, kind of gray or, or maybe light brown. Okay. And then when they die, they're pinkish oranges, correct? Yeah. So I would assume a lot of those scuds that are, are just free flowing downstream are probably dead. And that's why we tie up a lot of these in orange and in right. pink, correct? So if, if, if the lake, if the river level has been especially abnormally low mm -hmm. and then it rises, um, after a couple of days, then those scuds that were kind of in that that dry area for a little while, when the w water rises, they'll pick they'll they'll pick those up and they will have turned orange, and obviously that's a, that's a good thing to use, especially when so the water's on the rise. Can on those, yeah, yeah. yeah my my typical setup, and of course, let me remind folks, I am by far um, anything but experienced at the ferry, but I've fished it a couple times, uh, but I'd fish a you know, under an indicator, especially in that pocket water in the walk-in area, scud, then a dropper with a, uh, which is basically just a, another length of, of fly tippet or, or line with uh, typically a black zebra midge tied mm -hmm. onto the end of that. Yeah. Um, and quite honestly, I've never, I, you know, again, with my limited experience, I've never had fish key in on one or the other. I would catch them equally mm -hmm. on both, but. A lot of people that I know that, that are successful in the walk-in will also fish with a, uh, and so what you described, I would typically fish with a, <clears throat> Um, a floating line mm -hmm. and and under an indicator but yep. a lot of people will use will fish the walk-in with uh, a weighted sinking line and uh, woolly bugger yeah and, I, and I was going to leave woolly bugger for last because it's my favorite fly in the yeah. world <laughs> um, and uh, people I don't know and, and some of these like specialized fisheries where you know people have their systems and their flies uh -huh. um, I think people tend to forget about the woolly bugger because it works everywhere yes but um but yeah, I, I've oft, often wondered in that walking area, since you're right, it is tough wading on that stuff. Very uh -huh. strong currents can uh -huh. be quite dangerous, yep. you know, if you're not real sure on your feet. But if you had a, a spare rod or something, you could really launch a booger out mm -hmm. across that. Yep. I bet you'd pick up a fish every time. Yep. One, yep. one, one spot yep. or another. Now, one of, one of the fun, act, you know, when, so when you go upriver and you, and you fish, that typically you'll get out and, and wade fish under an indicator like, like Michael was describing, and um, that works well. Mm -hmm. But then you might also, um, when you're wade fishing, throw a weighted woolly bugger that way. But then when the, when the water level goes high so that you really have to probably safely, more safely fish from a boat, mm -hmm. um, you're going to put more weight on in that indicator rig, so you're going to need a bigger indicator, maybe a, a bigger thingamabobber to, okay. to kind of manage that. You might be using the the, the um, woolly buggers from the boat and sinking line and, and casting that, but one of the fun things to do at that point is also to uh, cast towards your shoreline with you know big hoppers mm -hmm. or cicadas yeah. and go for targeting the the bushes and you might have a uh, a big dry on like that with a, a small zebra midge underneath mm -hmm. and you know typically you, you throw it into that pocket and usually the water is, is quite deep there but the fish feel real secure with those bushes there and are looking for yeah. things to drop down and they'll smack it and oh, that's that's that's, that's a lot of fun yeah i've heard about the cicada hatches but yeah. i've never experienced one up there 
Uh, but boy, I bet it's a blast. I like mm-hmm. going big bugs like that where they splat on the water. Um, so when, when you're fishing that glassy water up there, um, are, are you are you sight fishing? Are you targeting fish? Are you trying to dead drift uh, or just get a nice drift with a scud or something in front of their face? Typically, I'm just I'm trying to get a good drift. Okay. Um, I've I've sometimes you know I'll, I'll go with a guide and and they will be helping me sight fish and. Mm-hmm. Quite often, I don't see the fish they're telling me to shoot for it. I'm yeah. just trying to target where, where they tell me to go. But um, more often, than I'm, I'm just throwing it in in the range of where I believe that they're going to have it and then try to have as long of a drift as I can. Mm-hmm. And very often, it's um, at the end when you when you begin to pick it up that you'll get a hit. Yeah. And and we were talking a bit about that today when when we were fishing today on the Upper East Verde. One of the things that I that I truly believe when I'm – fly fishing is I try to imitate the movement of the bugs that I am trying to imitate with my fly. So for example, if, if a, if a midge or a mayfly or something like that is, is getting ready to change from its aquatic stage to its adult stage, they're going to swim towards the surface usually pretty quickly. But often when they're doing that, they'll need a rest and they'll drop back down again and then they'll try and pick it back up and and go again to break through the surface. So that, kind of sporadic movement up and down if you can imitate that that's what a fish is used to seeing and that mm-hmm. often they will key in on that yeah watching watching you fish today was interesting because it's it's an approach that i don't typically take i'm certainly going to play with now because i watch you catch fish like this today but uh yeah jim likes to fish downstream which is feels really strange to me um but uh and yeah, he's he's always imparting action into those those flies. Um, and yeah, fish were eating them, so I can't yeah can't argue with with what I saw. <laughs> but uh, and it's certainly going to give me something fun to play with too, because I'm always focused on trying to get that perfect dead drift and yeah, just not messing anything up. Don't move the fly. I'll, I'll give a hopper a twitch every now and then. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, it was interesting. So well, um, <clears throat> as as folks have heard, um, this this is uh, a pretty dynamic fishery. There's a lot going on here. Um, a lot of doom and gloom stuff, but, uh, the truth is it's still a fantastic fishery. Hopefully it continues to be a fantastic fishery into the foreseeable future. And by all means, I would recommend folks get out there and, and check it out because there's not a more beautiful place to catch trout. I mean, hell, trout, trout live in beautiful places all over the West, but this place is special. Um, you know, there's camping, uh, right, right above the walk-in area. There's a couple hotels right up the road. Um, so yeah, it's got everything you need. It's a cool spot. It's out in the middle of nowhere, too. So I can't think of a better place, be a more beautiful place to yeah. fish. Well, Jim, before we before we get out of here, you, you, we barely cracked the surface on you. You have a lot going on. Um, tell folks uh, just a little bit, if you would, about your the fly fishing classes you offer and how they can maybe find those. Sure. Um, I teach um, classes through the Pace and Parks and Rec Department, and you can access that through paceandrimcountry.com. And um, those classes are offered uh, about every three months. Uh, so um, the next class um, will be Saturday, October 22nd. Mm-hmm. But I offer those classes in uh, April, June, and August as well every year. And those are all-day classes on Saturday. And um, half of the day is kind of uh, classroom. We talk about flies. We talk about aquatic insects. Uh, we talk about knots. We talk about um, where to look for fish and why to look for fish in certain places. 
uh, and um, talk about different kinds of fly equipment, fly tying, fly fishing equipment, differences, kinds of rods and reels and lines and all that kind of stuff in the morning, typically. And then the afternoon, we uh, get some casting practice in and some catching. Mm -hmm. And the morning is generally, it's often just me, but the afternoon session, um, I pull in the uh, members of the Pace and Flycasters Club and the Gila Trout Chapter, Trout Unlimited, um, as coaches. And that gives quite a bit of um, individuality to what the participant wants. So some people want to catch fish, and they are astounded that at the end of the day, they are catching quite a few fish on a fly rod. And others who perhaps might be a little bit more experienced, they've caught fish, but they want to have a little bit of opportunity to ex explore better casting. Mm -hmm. So we have people that can help you in a, in a broad range of whatever you'd want to kind of accomplish. That's great. Well, where do, where do folks find out about this, and where can they find you? Um, on the web? It's uh, paceandrimcountry.com. Okay. And, uh, yeah, just sign up uh, on the adult program section of that, and uh, that'd be great. We, we also do a fly tying uh, four sessions. Uh, usually it's about February okay. through the same access point. Okay. And do you get a lot of folks up from the Phoenix Valley? We have gotten some people that have come up from, from the Valley, yes. Okay. Well, um, yeah, you might be seeing my little boy. I'd love to get yeah. him in on some of this. That'd be great. Um, and, I mean, it'd be it'd be nice to have some instruction coming from out, outside of his dad, just kind of harping on him all the time to cast <laughs> better and not to use up all my good fly tide materials. But um, that sounds great. Jim, I, I want to thank you. Uh, this, this has been an awesome talk. I've certainly learned a ton. I know other folks have, too. And, yeah, hopefully they're inspired to get out there and see this place. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Jim. Well, what, what can I say about Jim Strojan? Um, he, uh, he's the kind of fella that I'm going to spend my life uh, trying to achieve that level of intellect and grace and thoughtfulness, but I'm never going to get there. Um, and that's quite all right. I'm just happy to know that these guys are out there um, speaking on the behalf of wildlife and wild places and, and doing this, this solid conservation work. Um, I know that you learned a lot on that episode. It was a special one. And, uh, and I certainly appreciate Jim coming on and talking with us. Uh, let's see. And please remember that this show is made possible by the Arizona Wildlife Federation. Uh, the Arizona Wildlife Federation is a pragmatic and science-based organization working on behalf of wildlife, public lands, our access to those public lands, and the habitat therein. We are, well, let's just say I am fiercely proud of this organization. Uh, we, we're doing a lot of good work, and I'm very proud of it. So if you would like to become a supporter, please think about that and do so. You can find a link to our website below and get more information on that. Also, don't ever uh, hesitate to reach out to me at podcast at azwildlife.org. Give me your thoughts, your ideas, your suggestions. I'm open to all of it. And, um, yeah, I guess that's it until uh, next time. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next show. Bye.